Welcome to week three of doing church online during these very difficult and always changing global crisis. Again, welcome to all of you tuning in that call Sanctus Church your home. To many of you who are Christians from other churches and backgrounds that cannot connect with your own church, you are most welcome as our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And to the many of you that are seekers and skeptics, you who are spiritual or maybe from another religious background or no background at all, joining us maybe again or for the first time, trying to find peace and stability in a very unstable time, we're so glad that you've decided to join us here today. Jesus said a lot of amazing things that people from every single background love to quote. Do unto others as you'd want done to you. He that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Worry about today. Real wisdom, sage wisdom that would help both philosopher and religious thinker and the rest of us live a better life. Christians and non-Christians love to quote Jesus and insta-Jesus this way all the time. But then Jesus did something quite wild. He said he had the right to say those things and everything else he said, not because of his education or his inspiration. He actually said he had the right to say all this because of who he was. His authority, he claimed, came from and, and had its grounding in his identity. And he claimed all sorts of really crazy things, like he's the only way to heaven, and he existed before he was born. Oh, and bigger than that, he is not one incarnation of God. He is God in flesh, and he's the only one who can forgive sins, ultimately. And he's the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the only savior of the world. And one of the most shocking statements Jesus ever said was this. It's found in Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Seek and save the lost? Well, that means there's a problem, and Jesus, of course, is claiming he could solve the problem, and he was coming to help all of us in trouble. But help us from what? Save us from being lost? It seems time and time again, Jesus says he has the answers to the greatest questions every single one of us wrestles with. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. But wonder if I don't think I am lost and wonder if I think I am found or I don't need to be found or wonder if I claim I have purpose in my life or maybe even during this global pandemic, I'm actually happy and healthy and things are sort of okay. So why would I need your help, Jesus? And by the way, Jesus, are you implying that I could be lost and I don't know that I'm lost? Yet I think probably the vast majority of us right now would say something different than we would have four weeks ago. We're all living in a global pandemic now. We're living through a global financial crisis right now. All of us are either in isolation or quarantine or practicing social distancing. More and more of us around the world are in places where shuttering is taking place. The government is shutting things down more. And more and more of us are also starting to know people directly affected by this virus. Many of us are actually feeling lost. And everything that we relied on literally four weeks ago is changing, it's in question, or maybe it's even gone. While Jesus was doing his ministry, he used parables, stories to help everyone from every single background, educated and not educated, poor and rich, men and women, and kids, and deeply religious people, and sort of religious people, and spiritual people, and nothings, to find themselves in his story, and to reveal where the original audience was at, and where we are all at, and where we might not be, even though we think we might be. There are many ways to be lost, but only one way to be found, and that's what Jesus claimed. 
Now, one of the most helpful stories about being lost and found and its connection, because we're walking into the Easter season, if you've even remembered that, and wrestling down how to have faith in a time of fear, starts with a lawyer, Jesus, and a really big crowd. It reads like this in Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's an expert in the law? They were lawyers, but not just lawyers, religious lawyers. Experts in the Old Testament, they were called scribes, the theologians and the professors of their day. And notice, this person of great respect and with title, with all the education, came to do one thing, to test Jesus. He wanted to know if this teacher was the real deal, fake, false, genuine. And the goal, of course, is to trap Jesus. The goal is to see if Jesus would go beyond or would contradict himself or deny even the law of God, thus setting Jesus up to be dismissed or removed or publicly humiliated. Cancel culture, by the way, is not new. It's always been around. And as we will see, he wanted to show himself off. Jesus is from some little backwater little town that we would say doesn't even have a Starbucks, let alone a Tim Hortons, let alone a stoplight, maybe just a stop sign. It would be like Jesus who never even finished, let's say, a junior high education, shows up at Harvard or London School of Economics or the University of Toronto and says, I'm now going to teach all of you. And some professors go, really? Really? Let's see where this goes. So the religious prof asks not just a question. He asks the most important question, the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What side of the great divide will I end up on at the end of time? Remember, this leader is not really asking the question. He thinks he already knows the answer, and he's in. I'm not lost. I'm found, he'd say. I have eternal life already. I'm a Jew, not just a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, and I'm part of God's covenantal people, and I worship the one true living God, and I have a good life, and I obey the Ten Commandments as much as I can, and I'm an expert in theology. I mean, if anyone's found, it's me, but none of us should miss this. Despite having God's blessing and God's presence, and God's word, more than what was the pagan world in that time, notice how flawed his question is. What must I do to inherit? You don't earn inheritance. You don't buy inheritance. You don't work for inheritance. It's a gift given to you by your family. And there it is. The most supposed found person on earth is actually one of the most lost people on earth, and he does not even know he is lost. Oh, he believes God loves him because of who he is and what he has and what his education's in and where he's come from. And remember, he's trying to trap Jesus to prove that Jesus is the one who's lost, not him. Well, Jesus responds with two questions, no answers, not yet. What is written in the Old Testament, the law, and how do you read it? Uh, Don't miss the irony of this. Jesus is God in flesh, the one who knows all, who wrote the law, who gave it to Moses, who by his spirit inspired all that would utter the Old Testament. So the author of the book says to the guy who's read it, what do you think? More specifically, Jesus asked for a summary of the whole Old Testament, 39 books. And what could summarize all of holy history? Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Samuel, Deborah, Samson, David, Solomon, Elijah, and Elisha, Hezekiah, and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the seer, Esther, the queen, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the rebuilders, Jonah, Haggai, Malachi, and the rest. Well, the so-called expert is an expert. And his answer is actually quite good. 
He answered, verse 27, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's a combination, by the way, of two verses from the Old Testament. It's from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. The first passage relates to loving God. And if you know God, you're called to love him fully with everything that you are. Mind, body, money, soul, everything. Just like a marriage, you've given yourself out of everything to that person. It's covenantal love. But then the second one is about being a neighbor. But now here's the big problem. Here's where the lostness comes home. In this context, neighbor just meant Jew, fellow Jew, or a person who's not Jewish who joined the Jewish faith. Just let me read the original verse that the scribe is quoting. It's Leviticus 19.18. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, we'll never understand what Jesus is about to do Unless we understand this, Jesus is about to reorient and reroute and destroy the exclusive idea of Jews only knowing God. See, here's another glimpse of why Jesus came to live, to die, and then physically rise again. This is the whole reason, actually, for the Easter season we are now in, to clear a path back to God the Father for the whole world, all nations, all families, all people groups, because all of us are lost, and all of us need to be found, and someone needs to find us. Well, Jesus says, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Oh, the lawyer has no time for that answer. It says in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. So then he asked Jesus this next question. Well, who is my neighbor? The attitude, of course, still wrong. He wanted to prove a point. Have you ever been in a heated discussion and you think you've got the upper hand? Maybe you're doing this online with someone or, or face-to-face and suddenly your very words become the thing that make you fall down? Well, that's about to happen here. Who's my neighbor? Well, this man is looking at Jesus. Can you hear his thoughts? Oh, I got you now. You think you're so informed, so smart, so enlightened. I'm going to show you. Let's see you, Jesus, get out of this one. Yet as one person said, his deep desire was to feel safe in his view of God. As another pastor wrote, the debate was in public, don't forget. And the lawyer would want all his colleagues to respect him. And he assumed, of course, Jesus would respond, well, your neighbor is your family and and friends and your fellow Jews. And the lawyer could say, well, I already love those people and I've just won the argument. Now, Jesus, of course, knows this man better than he knew himself. So Jesus turns the tables. And by the way, at this moment, as I'm preaching to you globally, Jesus is turning the tables in some of your lives right now. See, Jesus does not answer the question directly, but tells now a story, a parable that would expose everything and everyone listening, including us. And of course, it becomes one of the most famous stories in history. Luke 10.30. In reply, Jesus said this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away and left him half dead. So the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles. It descends 3,000 feet. I was there just a few months ago. I walked right on this road. It was known at this time as a dangerous place. And the first hearers of this story would know how possible that scenario was. Some hearing the story probably experienced it. All of them, I guarantee, had walked on this road. This is a nightmare scenario. For any one of us listening, any one of us walking alone and suddenly in the middle of the day or at night being surrounded by a group of people, the fear grows, the adrenaline kicks in, and maybe it was three or five or ten, we don't know, and and like millions before, and, and it will happen again millions later, 
A group of people selfishly begin to beat up this man. Hit, kick, bruise, beat, humiliate, injure, money taken, the wedding ring gone. But if they had not humiliated him enough, they strip him naked and they leave him to die. Now, just before death is coming to this man, there's the sound of footsteps. Many people that worked in Jerusalem and most that worked in the temple lived outside of Jerusalem and one of the suburbs was Jericho. So people are on their way home. This is for us who live, at least in the Canadian context here in Ontario, this would be like saying there were a bunch of people working downtown Toronto and and then they were on their way home on the 407 or the 401 and they're driving back to Oshawa or Newmarket or Burlington. Now the temple, of course, is the center of Jerusalem. And it's the center of the religious life of the Jews. It's the footstool of God on earth. It's the guaranteed place of meeting between God and humanity. And it's run by three group groups of people, formerly priests, and then Levites, and then lay people. Now, all three groups gave their life to God and to his worship. So those that worked full-time for God or the key volunteers in God's temple, so those that hear God's word all the time and those that help do the sacrifices all the time and those that sing to God professionally and those that clean God's house and those that walk in God's place are walking home after a long day of work. And it says in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed to the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw the man and what? Passed to the other side. Now, priests and Levites, just so you know, were members of one Jewish tribe, the tribe of Levi. And they had different roles. Priests did the sacrifices in the temple. The Levites assisted the priests in preparing the sacrifices, but also they were the musicians in the temple the janitors, and they were also the temple police, keeping those outside that were not allowed in, like, remember this word, the Samaritans. Both spiritual leaders, different callings, both had high status in God's community, not just because they were trained or chosen alone, but they were born in the right family. Most importantly, both, as one said, would be accustomed to being evaluated by birth and ancestry. So if anyone's found, it's them. And so the priest sees what he thinks might be a dead body, which according to the Old Testament is unclean. And so when the priest saw the body, he passes to the other side. Now he had just been in the temple working for God for five or 10 or 12 hours, and he chooses not to help. And we're sitting here like, what type of pastor is that who would work for God and not even help anyone? Like, what a hypocrite. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Context is king. There are two reasons why he passed on the other side. First, the very first question he would ask is this, is this person really even my neighbor? Listen to one historian. The wounded man beside the road was unconscious and stripped. Now, if the victim was a fellow Jew, especially a law-abiding Jew, the priest would have the responsibility to reach out and help the man. But his victim was naked and unconscious. So how could the priest be sure of his ethnic linguistic identity? No doubt the priest wanted to do his duty under God's word, but was this really his duty? The victim along the road could have been an Egyptian or a Greek or a Syrian or Phoenician, in which any case, the priest was not then responsible under God's word to do anything. That person wasn't his neighbor. You might be going, wow, I'm so shocked by that. Yeah, but just so you know, the idea that you have of neighbor today is a Christian-rooted idea. Well, second, if the person was dead, and if you touch the, the dead body, 
You became unclean before God, not just medically, but spiritually. And so if the priest chose to touch the body and the man was dead, there was a huge religious process of becoming clean, which took, by the way, a whole week. One author writes, if the priest became unclean, he has to turn around, go back to Jerusalem, stand at the eastern gate with all the other unclean people, and go through a process of purification. The ritual would not only take time, it would be a huge loss of wages. He would have to buy a full cow, a red heifer, which would be given in sacrifice. It would take a whole week, and it would cost significant money to him, his family, and his household. So the priest says, well, I can't even tell if the guy is my neighbor, and I don't want to be unclean before God, And it's going to cost me so much money and so much time. And so with God's backing, I'm just going to move on and I've got a clean conscience. And by the way, I guarantee you, at this moment, the crowd and the lawyer are going, yep, that's the right call. I do the same thing. Well, a few moments or hours later, it says, so to a Levite. He came to the place and saw him and passed on the other side too. So the Levite comes and the same rules apply to him, but there's actually another massive risk we don't even catch. Kenneth Bailey wrote this. He brings home the interpersonal risk we miss reading this in 2020. Uh, The Levites functioned in the temple as assistants to the priest. Okay. Now this particular Levite probably knew the priest that was ahead of him on the road and might have even been his assistant. And since the priest had set the precedent, should a mere Levite upstage the priest? Did the Levite think he understood God's word better than the priest? Furthermore, if the Levite uh, chose to help the person, he'd have to face the same priest in Jericho that night. Could a Levite ride into Jericho with a wounded man whom the priest, in obedience to his understanding of God's word, chose to ignore? Such an act would be an insult to the priest. So you got peer pressure, and you've got trying to obey God, and you got personal dynamics, and you got job security, and trying to obey his boss, and you'll live in the same town, and on and on and on it goes. Now at this point, the lawyer and the whole crowd is expecting one of two things. Either they'd expect the third class of person to come along, the lay leader to come along and do the same thing. So it'd be like us saying, uh, coming from downtown to Toronto, out to Ajax, there was a pastor, and then there was a ministry director, and then there was an Uber volunteer. But others would be thinking something different. Others would be hoping that Jesus would take it to the religious people of the day. They'd be thinking like, finally, someone's got the authority to call out these privileged religious people to see what they really are. Why don't you go get those pastors and priests? They're hypocrites. They're, They're born into privilege. As the crowd looks for either option, Jesus does something. He devastates the crowd by introducing the most hated person to every Jew on earth. He actually chooses to unite them in their racism. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Samaritans were hated by Jews, but why so much hate? Well, another question maybe to ask is, well, where did the Samaritans come from? Who are they? Well, the Jewish people had a civil war after Solomon died, and two nations were born. Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. All the prophets in the Old Testament were asking both of these nations to return back to God. When the north rebelled more and more, the Assyrians came in and took them over, and started intermarrying with the Jews that were there. And out of that came a mutation of the Jewish faith. These now half Assyrian, half Jews became the Samaritans and they worshiped the God of the Jews, but only used the first five books of the Bible and they mixed Assyrian belief with Jewish belief. 
years later, when the Jews from the south came back from the Babylonian exile under Nehemiah and Ezra, they went to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans said, could we help? They said, absolutely not. And so the Samaritans had already built their own temple. So you've got huge gulfs of language and religion and national animosity and, and neighbor and family member turned enemy and you've got war and now you've got two competing views of who even God is. So the enemy that everyone hates in the crowd, Jesus introduces as the good guy and does the unthinkable. He takes pity on his enemy. Let me bring this home. <clears throat> this would be like an Al-Qaeda member loving and helping a U.S. soldier somewhere in Iraq or Syria. This would be like a Turkish soldier helping a Kurdish soldier. This would be in the Rwandan genocide like a Hutu during the murders helping a Tutsi or vice versa. A World War II analogy. This would be like an SS officer helping and loving a Jewish person during the ethnic cleansing. This would be like a Serbian loving and helping a Bosnian. This would be like a KKK clans member helping an African American. So if you don't understand the ethnic and religious and political hate, you miss the power of the story. Well, the story continues that the Samaritan puts himself at even more risk. He went to the man, verse 34, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. In detail, Jesus outlines the man's unexpected mercy. And I guarantee you the crowd is growing more and more and more uncomfortable and angry at the thought of a Samaritan enemy, even touching a Jewish body, even if it was dead. How dare he? It's unthinkable. Now the Samaritan starts with wine and oil, which of course was the medicine of the day. The irony is that Levites and priests use oil and wine to worship God in the temple. So the one banned from worshiping God in Jerusalem uses the symbols of worship to love his enemy. Oh, oh there's more. The Samaritan puts him on his donkey. It'd be like us saying that the Samaritan puts him in his car and drives him. Do you notice that? I had never caught this right into a Jewish town. Most hearing this would expect the Samaritan to drop the man on the edge of town and get out of there. Samaritans were so hated that it would be expected that if he entered into a Jewish town, let alone into an inn, let alone stayed the night in a Jewish town, he himself could end up being beaten to death by the community. Yet despite all this, he grows and he, he crosses every boundary. He doesn't just drive the wounded man to the local Hilton Inn. He stays the night and then offers money. How much money? Two silver coins. We, we know that this could equal either two weeks, but up to two months of room and board. So not just ER care, but rehabilitation. So this man risks his life, his money, and his time to save a person he had been taught since he was born to hate. And moreover, don't, think about the, don't forget this, he risked falsely being accused because he could have been accused for beating up the Jewish men in the first place. So the crowd doesn't know what to do because in one little story, every person who thought they were okay and thought they were found, th thought that they were in good standing with God, suddenly everyone might be lost. Jesus then speaks. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Jesus, I'm sure, looked at his accuser and his friends, his colleagues, and the crowd and Jesus, of course, knows in this moment, if this man would see, 
If this man would embrace, move towards him, then he would gain eternal life. Yet Jesus leaves no room for him to maneuver, to use language to get out. He does not ask again, who is my neighbor, but who acted like the neighbor? I'm sure the lawyer's heart dropped. He knows the crowd can see the answer. His colleagues can, he can. He never expected to be in this place with this uneducated, wandering teacher. Well, the expert of the law replied, well, it's the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. I'd never caught this. Maybe you have, but did you notice? The man can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Just the guy who had mercy. The hate is so deep. Jesus says, well, go and do likewise. So the story is open-ended. Did he do it? Did he change? Did he become a follower of Jesus? Did he become one of our spiritual forefathers and ancestors? Or did he, out of anger and pride and resentment, join the religious leaders of that time that would be, of course, the human reason why Jesus would be rejected and beaten and spit upon and crucified and murdered, just like the man in the story? Did this leader become a robber that killed the Son of God or a Samaritan, a true child of God? Only heaven knows. Now, as we enter Easter and into the Easter season, which again is shocking to even talk about, and as we're trying to find faith and hope and stability during the greatest health threat in our known time, here's what we all must hear no matter what country you're in, no matter your religious background or non-religious background. Hope will only be found in this scary moment And Easter, the season of Easter, will only mean something to us if we honestly accept not just the teaching of Jesus, but the claims of Jesus, what he made about himself, and what he actually says about all of us. The story is the heart of the Easter story, and this is why Jesus came into the world. See, it's not by chance or fate. This is God's providence, to use an old word, God's design, that you are hearing this message right now, wherever you might be. Here, at this time, you plainly see everything as God sees it. You and I are spiritually on the side of the road, alone, unable to do anything about our condition, lost in every way possible. The Bible says we're separated from God because of our sin. We're in bondage to sin. We can't stop sinning. We're slaves to ourselves. We're blind to our blindness, and we're actually even owned by supernatural darkness, and we're laying there like that man. You may not see yourself that way, but that's how God sees you. And since we can't do anything, the only thing the world offers is a few solutions. One of the biggest offerings is religion. God will love you if you work hard enough and you're you're moral enough and you say no to enough things and you go to enough religious things and do enough, then the the great scales will work themselves out. But see, the truth is when religion really shows up, it walks to the other side. No matter how strong or good or moral or all our good works or all our religious acts, they don't work. Here's some other things. Maybe we've put all of our trust or faith in our education or our family background or our money or our things or our cottages or our, our, our cars or, or our homes or our jobs or the humanitarian projects we're helping in or, or our political hopes or the movements we affiliate with or maybe we're self-made or maybe you're profoundly good-looking and beautiful or maybe you have profound influence through social media. None of these things, even the good side of those things, can heal and save and pick up and restore you fully. At the end of the day, we're left still separated from God 
And truthfully, we're lust, left with lust and greed and pride and anger and unforgiveness and bitterness and addiction and sexual morality and selfish ambition and lying and murdering and coveting and adultery and discord and witchcraft and hatred and racism and fear and death. If, if you don't believe me, just look at your thought life in the last 24 hours and you'll see it. Yet amazingly, the good news is that God does not choose to leave us to death. He comes when we could do nothing and picks us up and heals us and doesn't just heal us, but he continues to walk with us and help us see the most important verses in any time, but even during this time of pandemic is this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, the most famous verse in the Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in Jesus will not die, but have eternal or everlasting life. See, this is the unexpected love of God. Jesus is the Samaritan that comes into a world that does not really want him or dismisses him or rejects him or likes quoting him only when they like him or even hates him, but he still picks up the bleeding and wounded and broken on the side of the road. Jesus was and is the good Samaritan. But the difference is, He's profoundly more important. Jesus lived a perfect life. We're all called to live, which we can't. Jesus, when he died, what we'll celebrate on Good Friday, took all the wrath that we deserve because we've broken God's law. He took all the sin that's ever been committed, placed it on himself, and, and he died. And then three days later, he literally physically rose back from the dead. So death doesn't win in the end. And he conquers sin and death and disease and the power of darkness. And so what would God be saying to every seeker and skeptic and those who have the title Christian but aren't really followers yet? Here it is. Turn to no other God. Don't turn to any other religious system. Don't turn to spirituality or mindfulness or, or yoga or another formal faith. Oh, don't trust in your beauty and don't trust in your money and don't trust in your job. As you're seeing in the last four weeks, they can be taken like that. See that being self-made does not do it fully in the end. Turn to Jesus because Jesus can deal with our condition fully. And so what do you say to him? Do you want eternal life? Will you accept his offer for, for forgiveness of sin now and never being alone and the fear of death being removed and the power of death not having the final say? Because as Jesus was res resurrected from the dead physically, so if you trust in him, even if you die, that will happen to you. Or do you choose to stay on the side of the road now and for eternity? What do you do with Jesus? Now, for us who are followers of Jesus, this is a very challenging passage for us. God has been speaking to many of us today. None of us started as priests and Levites when we met God, yet some of us have become like them in their actions. We leave church like they left the temple, and we serve God, and we love him, and we want to please him, and we know his word, but when the radical call to serve is given, we walk to the other side. It's one thing to know God's will. It's another to internalize it. It's another thing to act upon it. It's going to take too much of my time, John. It's going to cost me too much money. It's too dangerous. It's going to make me unclean to walk with those people. It's going to, you don't understand. How could all of us be changed again to be like the great Samaritan who Jesus himself is? 
One of the great things we could do at this moment, even during isolation or quarantine during this pandemic, is to ask God through his Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, to remind you of what you used to be. Because only then will you become grateful and move towards God's compassion and mercy again. No matter when you became a Christian, I became a Christian at three years old with my mom through a Sunday school teacher. Whether you became a Christian as a child or a teen or an adult or now in your later years, uh, whether you had a, a great life or a life of sin, ask God to show you what your life would have been without him. Only then would you be moved to love others and love God like you've been loved so much. And in this time of profound uncertainty, loving our neighbor matters. How do we continue to be a good Samaritan in a time where we are being told to isolate ourselves? Well, here's the first thing. Wash your hands and pray. Obey the government. Distance. Love people. Be a good Samaritan. Save people by doing the things we need to. But it's deeper than that. Have you stopped this week and reached out to friends and family who are not Christians? I guarantee you they know they are more lost now than they did four weeks ago. Have you offered through faith at Facebook or Instagram or through a phone call or for a, for, through a text to pray for someone? I guarantee you most people will probably be open to prayer now in a way they have not been ever. Here's a deeper thing. Connect with them visually, Zoom, whatever. Take time to talk with them. Uh, help them not to be alone. Uh, pray for them, but also tell them the good news about Jesus. Tell them that actually fear and death, though we're afraid as Christians, it doesn't have the same effect on us like it might be having on them. Even some of you who are losing your jobs as Christians and you're fearful, you still can say, but God is going to provide for me and I know he is good. Can, can you say to your neighbors, do you have the same assurance I have? Let me just say this. Share the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me say this one last time. Only now are many of our friends and family and neighbors coming to realize how lost they are. And what they trusted in is so fleeting. And four weeks ago, they wouldn't have believed it at all. One last thought as we get ready for Easter. How can we carry people home? Well, let me just say two simple things beyond everything I said personally. I want to encourage every person listening to me who's a Christian to continue to share this link of these sermons online, because as we get to Easter, we're going to keep giving the gospel of Jesus. Invite as many people as you can to hear the good news of Jesus. We again, week after week, are hearing more and more people inviting friends, and friends, because it's virtual, are coming to church for the first time and checking it out. Be courageous, be brave in this time of fear, and invite people out. You can bring people home. You could be the Good Samaritan by inviting people, but more than that, we're excited to even announce we're working on how we're going to launch Alpha virtually. Alpha is this amazing course where we get to explore the Christian faith and any question is allowed and many of us have taken it and all sorts of people are, are wrestling through the Christian faith as a seeker or skeptic and just after Easter we're preparing to launch Alpha online and we're going to invite you as a church to prepare for that because you can literally begin to invite people virtually to take Alpha with you and with our church. That's an amazing way to bring someone home. So could we just take a moment and could we just end this moment by praying together? God, in this time of a global pandemic where fear is everywhere, where more and more people are sick and dying, where our money is disappearing and we can't be with our loved ones and reach out the way we could before, 
First of all, I, I just thank you for the good news that God sent his son Jesus into this world to overcome sickness and death and promises resurrection. So we who are Christians just want to say to you today in whatever living room we're in or whatever car we're in or wherever we're listening to this, we want to say thank you, Jesus, for being our good Samaritan. Thank you that you came and you fixed us and you've healed us and you've given us the promise of resurrection and life. And we just want to again say our hope is in the truth found in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not life, not death, not angels, not demons, not the past or the future. We can never be separated. So thank you for that. And Lord, we pray for real profound opportunities to begin to invite neighbors and friends to find Jesus. I pray that you'd give opportunities for us to pray for our neighbors, to share the good news of Jesus. We ask this now. And then for some of you who are watching online who have never again crossed the line of faith and genuinely become a follower of Jesus, just pray this in this time of fear. Jesus, I'm admitting I'm on the side of the road. I'm there. All my religiosity didn't get me anywhere or all my self-made work didn't get me anywhere or my beauty or my money, I'm there. And I just admit I'm a sinner. I admit I've rebelled against you, God, and I've broken your law and actually I'm in trouble. And I just want to say that, Jesus, I believe you can be my good Samaritan. So I want to trust in you. I believe you really lived, you really died, you really rose from the dead physically. You have the power to forgive sins. So forgive me of my sins. Would you wash me with your oil and your wine, clean me up, I want you to be my savior and my Lord, my King. I'm going to live for you the rest of my life. And I want life now. And also I want eternal life after death. And so I just repent in this Easter season during this wild moment in history. And I just say, I want to have assurance of life and eternal life. I just, Jesus Christ, save me, I ask. And Lord, we just want to end this service time by praying for the global church in all of its forms that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit, empower the church to love God in this moment and to love our neighbors in profound ways and may truly incredible stories come out of this really broken time as the people of God love a broken world. Make us good Samaritans to love our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. Amen.